Good morning. Good to see you guys today. And I am excited for us to finish this series, not because I'm tired of it, but because it's always good to be at the end. Usually the finale is really good, and I hope that's true today. If you're just joining us or if you haven't been around for each week of the series, we've been in the series that we've been calling Poison and Wine. And we've been saying that because poison and wine are these metaphors for the harm or the help that we can cause or bring to our closest relationships. And so we've talked about how specifically in Christian marriage, it's this picture of how much God wants to love his people, the church. And we've continued in that in in the sense that because we do the wrong thing sometimes, we say the wrong thing and we think the wrong things, our words can bring a lot of harm or a lot of help. Specifically, they can lead us to places of the garden or the vineyard, as we called it, these places of freedom, these places of uh, intense satisfaction, places where we don't feel like we've got to cover anything up. But, but we can say the wrong thing and end up in places of hiding, in blame, and even into places where we called it fortresses, where we're afraid uh, not only of the other person, but of our true selves. So, From there, we went to conflict, and we talked about how when we fight, it's not an opportunity to be right, but it's an opportunity to be unified, and how we have to submit to God, ask him to show us our motives, and then live into that. Last week, we talked about this idea of skin-on-skin intimacy as true becoming one with each other rather than just pleasure or just bad or almost like a god or an idol in our lives. And those things can either lead us to poison or they can lead us to health, healing, what we called wine. But today, uh, we're just going to deal with the reality that even when we do those things right, we see marriages still fail. Even when we do these things right in our friendships, we see sometimes friendships, they just end. We wake up one day and go, I don't know, we used to be close but we're not now. We see families split apart. And so it seems like no matter how good we do at this, poison still infiltrates even the best of relationships. There is good news. There is an antidote. The bad news is, I think there's only one antidote. We see that in a story Uh, from Luke chapter 7. So if you have a scripture or a Bible you want to turn there, if you want to read along with us, you can get one in the back. As you're turning there, um, this isn't just words on a page. We're not just going to read a story from the Bible because we should. It's church. Uh, We're going to look at this because it's the only antidote. It's the way to life because we all need it. Specifically, I had some friends um, that I'm going to call Rick and Sarah today. Uh, And when I met Rick and Sarah, they'd been married for about 19 years. They had a couple kids. They had a nice house in the suburbs. They worked in corporate America, and things were going well. And and they were involved in a church, and everything seemed nice on the outside. But as we like to say, at least around restoration, there's always some pain behind the porch. And as I got behind the porch in... Rick and Sarah's life. Rick specifically, we were out to lunch one day, and his 20th anniversary was coming up, and so I was pretty young in marriage, so I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew it was important. Like, 20 years, that seems important. What are you going to do? What are you going to do for your your wife on this special day? And he's like, 
I don't know, we'll probably go out to dinner and maybe rent a video. And he almost responded robotically. And so I'm, I'm going, I don't know a lot, Rick, but I'm pretty sure that's not going to be a winner. And, uh, and he said, well, there's, there's a lot you don't know. I'm, I'm basically just hanging on for the kids. And the pain that was in his face told me that he needed an antidote and he needed it fast. Uh, and the good news is that I think there is one. Now, Jesus has been in this mode, Luke is telling us, this writer, of speaking about the kingdom of God and then demonstrating it through his actions about what the kingdom of God is like. And so, at this point in the story, Jesus has not only talked about what the kingdom is like, he has demonstrated what it's like through forgiveness and healing. And the people who are responding, it's pretty amazing. And this is right in line with that. This one woman has responded, and she shows up uninvited to a dinner party. It starts in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees, one of these religious teachers, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. Now, I don't know how you would describe yourself. I don't think many of us use the word Pharisee anymore. Someone who is a religious expert, someone who knows a lot about God. Uh, As much as I don't want to see myself in that light, There are times where I do know a lot about God. And there are plenty of people who tell me that I know a lot about God. But I don't want to know a lot about God. I want to know God. And and the fact that this person knew a lot about God and invited Jesus to his house and he went gives me hope. And I hope it gives you hope today. But a woman from that town who had lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and she came to the party. Now, I probably wouldn't describe myself as a Pharisee. I don't know if I'd describe myself as someone who lives a sinful life. Would you describe yourself as someone who lives a sinful life? I might describe myself as someone who sins, someone who gets it wrong, someone who makes mistakes, someone who says to their spouse or friend, like, very much the wrong thing that I'm going to refrain from telling you right now because it's just embarrassing. But I wouldn't say a sin-filled life. But that's who shows up at the party. And she's not invited. And Jesus never sends her away. Now, the Pharisee would like to not have her at the party. And I think that's true in our relationships. When we have something planned, whether it's in marriage or it's in a friendship or it's in a family, when we have something planned and all of a sudden things are not going our way, don't we like to ignore them? Oh, maybe that'll just go away. Shouldn't go away. No, she came to the dinner party, and it says that she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind Jesus at his feet because they would have been at a couch, there would have been a table in the middle, they would have been around it, and so his feet would have been out. She would not have been in the center of the room or under the table, if you're imagining it. She would have been on the outside. And she stood behind him at his feet, and she wept. As she was weeping, she... her tears wet his feet, 
And she wiped the tears with her hair, and she kissed his feet, and she poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited them to the party, or invited Jesus to the party, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, what kind of woman who is touching him, but she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. So two people, they owed money at a bank, certain money lender. One of them owed 500 denarii. One of them owed about 20 months worth of salary. The other one owed about 50 days worth of salary, about, about two months worth of salary. So not small amounts of money, if you just picture in your mind of what your income would be there. But they owed money to the bank. Neither of them could pay their debt. So the bank lender forgave both debts. Now, Simon, which one do you think would love more? Simon says, well, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, "You've, you've answered correctly. But then he turns to the woman and he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your home and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet her feet. She wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. From the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet, but you didn't even give me a kiss of greeting when I entered your home. I'm a rabbi and a teacher. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, that her sins, though they are many, have been forgiven. And she has shown much love. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sin? And Jesus turns to the woman and says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. God, I could read this story every day, and I think I would learn something. It's a good reminder that, God, your word is still alive, that you still speak, and that you still heal. I pray that we would hear what you want us to hear today. Well, if you, in case you haven't figured it out yet, the antidote is in that story. And we'll look at it in a second. But uh, in case you also don't know, we have a whole bunch of people getting married this summer. I mean, they're, they're in restoration or around restoration. And, um, and they are excited about their wedding. And they are wondering how they're going to do their ceremony and what kind of verses they're going to pick for their ceremony. Does anyone want to guess what verses? If you had to put money down, because we're a church who bets, right? Um, what verses might they choose at their wedding? Corinthians. Colossians 3. Corinthians 5, 6. We looked at last week. No? We would look at 13, right? Right? We would talk about... We'd, we'd hire an uh, 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 actor or a speaker to talk about 
and give the message from 1 Corinthians 13, verse four, starting in verse 4, that love is patient, and love is kind. And love does not get puffed up. It doesn't boast. It doesn't brag. It's not proud. It, it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Can't you just hear it? Being spoken at a wedding so well. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, endures all things. It never ends. But we know that sometimes love does end, right? We know that those people that are standing there gazing at each other, not really listening to much of what the minister or the priest or the justice has to say, we know they're just gazing at each other thinking about how this love will, has filled them and will continue to fill them, maybe. Except so often, just a few years into their marriage, or maybe many years into their marriage, this excitement turns to apathy. Even in our friendships, uh, sometimes there's this excitement and it turns to surface conversation. Couples who used to gaze at each other are now glaring at each other. What used to be an overflowment of joy and, and love now looks like hurt, anger, maybe even hate. They're confused, they're anxious. Poison has infiltrated the relationship. But... I believe that God offers in this story and throughout the scriptures this antidote of forgiveness. Now, I imagine if I was you and I was sitting out there, you'd be like, mm-hmm, right, yep, but you don't understand. So I'm not going to assume that you believe me, that forgiveness is the antidote, but I have three reasons why from this story that I think it might be. So I'd love you to Listen and consider them. See, the first thing I think that happens in this story is that forgiveness acts, as, acts like a flushing or a flood. If, if you, I get this idea from, like, if you squirt pepper juice in your eye, I don't do this regularly. It sometimes happens as an accident, though. You know, and, ah, my eye! And you call the people that are like, flush the water, just keep flushing your eye out, or... Or if you um, drink something that is toxic, they tell you to flush that out or drink a whole bunch of stuff to try and get things moving or out. Or, Yeah, we'll stop there. And, and if you, heaven forbid, have some kind of poison in your bloodstream, the doctors would hit the saline up and would flush that out or dilute that so that you could be healed. That's the spirit of what I think forgiveness does according to this part of the scriptures. It acts as a flushing, a, a ridding of the poison. The first thing that I think that forgiveness does here to open up our soul, to flush out the poison, is that it opens our eyes so that we can see the person and not just the fault. See, in this story, when, when the Pharisee sees the woman, he says, oh, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is. What kind of woman? Sounds like he's very much categorizing her. Well, when we see someone's fault, and that's all we can see, we start categorizing them. And in fact, I would say when we don't forgive, we stop 
seeing the person, and maybe we just see their fault. Maybe we just see their sin. And when Jesus hears the accusation from the religious man that he can't see the difference between a sinner and a non-sinner, or a sinner and a person that's made right, he tells a little story, and afterwards he says, Simon, can you see this woman? Because the implication is that he's not looking at this woman. He's not seeing her for who God made her to be. He's not seeing her as someone who God could love. Don't we do that? Whether it's a friend or a partner, when we get hurt, we right, rightly, when we get hurt, we feel slighted. When we get hurt, we want the other person to see their mistake. We're not, even if we're trying not to throw the mistake at them, we just want them to agree. Could you just see? Could you just look at your mistake? And if they're not seeing it, we like to hold it up some more. Not out of a, even not out of a, out of a vindictiveness, just out of this point of validation. We just want to be validated that we feel hurt. But we also want to make sure that we're not doing silly things like forgiving and forgetting. We don't want the other person to forget what they've done. Because they might do it again. And we don't want them to do it again. So sometimes we hold it up just to make sure they don't do it again. I had a teacher once that liked to, to teach this way. It's incredibly demeaning, isn't it? Could you just make sure you don't do this again? I mean, even when it starts out in the, most, in the best-natured way, could you just not do this again? Please don't do this again. And all of a sudden, we've held it up so much that all we see is that and not the person. But forgiveness opens our eyes to see beyond the sin, to see beyond the mistake, and to start seeing the person as someone who God loves. And that's why I want to be honest here. That's why forgiveness is so hard. Because it's not a math problem. It's personal. And it hurts. And so rather than face it, we turn our backs to it. We sleep looking the other way. We avoid the friend. We spend a lot of time in our rooms that's going on in our family. But forgiveness, it opens our eyes to the possibility that God still loves this person, to the probability and the reality that God still loves this person, even if I'm having a hard time loving this person. Now, forgiveness and trust, they're different. I'm not talking about trust right now. I'm talking about forgiveness right now. Okay? So if you're having major problems in a relationship and you can't trust, please hear the separation there. But forgiveness allows us to see the other person. And, and Tim and Kathy Keller, who write this book called The Meaning of Marriage, they say it this way. And I would say this is probably true beyond marriage in our relationships. The secret to staying friends, or the secret to marriage, as they say it, is to choose to love the other person even when they're not giving much love back. Have you ever had to go the extra mile for a friend and, a f- and go and go? Now, if you have to do that forever, it's a pretty one-sided friendship. It probably won't last. But, but Tim and Kathy say, in the, same, in the same regard as parenting, 
where we often have to give and give and give and give if you're a parent to a, a child that's probably not giving much love back, your affection for them grows to the point where you're bawling when they leave for college, right? Like, bye, mom. <gasps> my mom cried all for four hours leaving my house. And I'm like, I wasn't even that good of a son. Well, it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with the amount of love that she'd given in spite of my ratty attitude, in spite of my yelling back at her, in spite of. And, and that's what their point is in this book, is to choose to love even when the other person's not loving back. And, and maybe they're sick and it's legitimate. Or maybe they're distracted with something they're going through at work. And that's kind of legitimate, but it's hard. But they're just absorbed in that, so you choose to love. But, but maybe it's bigger than that. Because maybe they lied. Maybe they cheated. Maybe they left. And now the security and the trust and the honesty that was, that was formed in this relationship is gone. And forgiveness opens your eyes to face the other person. Both the reality of what still needs to happen, but also the fact that God loves them. And so when you're forgiving them, you're not saying, hurt me again. You're just saying, I'm going to choose to not hurt you. What that does is it brings up the second reality that when we choose not to hurt them, we are opening ourselves up. Forgiveness opens us up to, to feel again. It opens our emotions. Because when we're hurt, we want to close off, we want to protect. But we can't close off one set of emotions and keep another set of emotions open. I mean, people have done research on this for, for years and years. You can't stop um, the bad feelings and not stop the good feelings. Our emotions, don't, they don't check it. If you cut them off, you've cut them off. And that's why people drift apart. That's why couples who choose not to love in spite of, even when the other person's not loving, that's why in these major life transitions, like when a kid has gone to school, they look at each other and go, no love left. I don't feel anything. Right, because the very thing you practiced with your child, you didn't practice with your spouse. And I'm certainly not saying it in judgment. I'm saying it to myself, too. This love can grow. Love isn't this ethereal feeling. It's a choice and an affection towards. It's a movement towards. It's a service towards. Even in the really hard stuff. Can you choose to love someone else when they're not giving much love back? And when you can, Forgiveness just doesn't let you see the other person. Forgiveness opens you up to feel again. And when you can feel again, what forgiveness is doing is it's allowing you to feel grace. You're showing grace. That's what forgiveness means in the scriptures. Even though trust is broken and trust needs to be rebuilt, this forgiveness, forgiveness in the scripture literally means to show grace. So when we can show grace, what we're saying is, I'm going to love you in spite of. I'm going to keep my vows, even if you're not keeping yours. See, in a marriage ceremony, we do an exchange of vows, and somehow we think that that's how we're supposed to 
give our love in exchange mode. I will keep my vow in exchange for you keeping your vow. And when you don't keep yours, I'm not going to keep mine. That's where Rick and Sarah were at. See, what Rick told me later in the conversation was when he said, there's a lot you don't know. He said, three years ago, Sarah was at her job and she got taken advantage of. She got harassed. And she has not been able to let me love her. She has not been able to feel anymore. Now, I got it for three for weeks. You know, I accepted her right away, and I still accept her. And I forgave her, but I thought I did. But months turned into years. And now three years have gone by. And she's still saying, I can't tell the difference between your affection and this experience. And he's like, I don't have much left. And I, and I explained this idea of forgiveness to show grace. And he left the conversation saying, well, I guess I'll keep my marriage vows even if she's not keeping hers. And so he needed to understand forgiveness as much as she needed to understand forgiveness. And here's the crazy thing. When I saw him a year later, she had. In fact, she loved him more than he had ever known because she forgave in that experience. That released all of these emotions. She saw all of the grace, all of the affection, all the care that he was showing her. And this love just exploded and he didn't know what to do with it see when we when we open ourselves up in this idea of forgiveness it and open our emotions up there's a drastic thing that happens i mean jesus is trying to tell us it in the story look at the contrast uh the the pharisee here's this story about someone who owed money a big amount of money and someone who owed a little bit amount of money and he answers robotically he answers intellectually Logically, it would make sense that the person who was forgiven the bigger debt would love in a bigger way. See, forgiveness isn't a math problem, though. Forgiveness is personal. That's what makes it so hard. But this woman, who had been forgiven, look at the emotions involved. Simon, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. She's poured perfume on my feet. Do you feel the emotion that is involved in that? Well, I suppose the one who'd been forgiven more. When we forgive and choose to forgive, it releases these emotions. And, and it stops our judgment. I think when we stop feeling, we start judging. And yes, we hurt each other. And yes, we have to admit and face those things. But think about when you've ever hurt someone, when you've ever messed up, and you've actually had the courage to go to them. First of all, that takes a lot of courage. Second of all, it takes a lot of courage to actually look at them rather than 
be ashamed. Whenever we've messed up, isn't it hard to make eye contact? Hard to make face contact? But when we do, and when the other person accepts it, even that unlocks something. Even that releases something. And when we start speaking those words of the reality of the situation, and the other person says, I forgive you. I choose not to take revenge. I choose not to hurt you in spite of you hurting me. It begins a transformation, doesn't it? That's what forgiveness opens. The problem is that if we don't have the release or the opening of the third part of our soul, we begin to feel emptied. We begin to feel exhausted. And that's what happened on this encounter with Rick and Sarah. I was with Rick. been four years now. And now she was exuding love all over them, and he didn't know what to do with it. He was completely rejecting it. Because he said, I'm tired. I'm exhausted, actually. And when I started to dig under that, he's like, you don't understand. I gave, and I gave, and I gave, and she didn't give anything back. You can't just flip a switch and t- turn on after, after almost four years of being shut off. When I got a little bit further in that, I realized that he had been trying to serve this woman. He had been trying to show her grace, if you will, but he was doing it completely out of his own effort. Because forgiveness is exhausting, completely and utterly difficult, and if we do it in our own strength, we are going to be emptied of our capacity to love. See, we have to open ourselves up to the third thing. The opening of our spirit is what forgiveness has to unlock. So it's not just showing grace, it's receiving God's grace. It's sharing in that grace. When we can receive God's grace, now our capacity to love doesn't have to run dry. That's what he was missing. That's what she got in his love. She unlocked, her emotions unlocked, but he, he was still closed off because he hadn't allowed God to fill him. He, he had wanted to do this thing out of his own effort and not out of God's divine love. That's what I think we see in the story when Jesus turns to the woman and looks at her and said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She understood that she'd been made right with God, not out of her own effort, by accepting what God was offering. See, my friend Rick was trying to give out what he wasn't willing to accept. And it can't work that way. True forgiveness has to be from God and with God if it's ever, ever going to work. Think about what showing grace means. Like God gives us what we don't deserve. That's grace, right? And so when Jesus hangs on the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they were doing, he's saying, Father, show them grace. But we've got to receive it to live into it. We've got to receive it to be filled with it. Jesus shows grace to this woman, first by seeing her, 
Then by acknowledging her affection and acknowledging her as a person without guilt or shame. And then by forgiving her. And don't you see that as she walks away, she's transformed? There's transformation that happens with this person. Their sins are removed. They can be seen. They can feel. And they can have peace with God. Isn't that why? I mean, I'm sorry, but that, in case you don't know, that's why we started the church. That's why I still do this thing that, I, that God called me to four years ago. Because there are people in our lives that might be brave enough to walk through that door. They didn't get necessarily invited to the table, but they're hoping they don't get kicked out. They might even look up and wonder, it sounds good, but is it for me? Yeah. Grace saves us. Truth sets us free. We've been saying that all, all series. So truth is important, but grace saves us. This is a place where we got to come and say, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says it. Your faith saves you. Live in God's peace. We need that. There are people that are too scared to walk through the door or, or thinking that this is just going to be a religious routine, so why bother walking through the door? And we will need to go and be those people in their life if we ever want to see transformation happen. That's what Jesus invites us to in Christian community, in church. That's what he invites us to in marriage. We're not just saying, I do, I will, and you will in exchange. What we're saying is, I see who God has made you to be and who you can become if you live into his forgiveness. And one day when we stand before heaven, I will see that person and God will say, thanks for being a part of it. Well done. Thanks for being used. Thanks for being my vessel in this transformation. I knew you could be that. Don't you? At the end of your life, for someone who knows you well, to say, I knew you could be that. I'm so thankful to be a part of it. God wants that for each one of us. Not just as an individual basis, but for each other. And in communion, we celebrate both. Communion is this time of showing and sharing in God's grace. So, isn't it appropriate that Jesus would say, this is my body when he takes the bread and it's broken for forgiveness of sin because he's inviting us to be transformed. Now it starts with God. So as we move into a, a song, I want you to just spend some time with God. And after we'll talk about each other. But have you accepted the fact that God continually and continually and continually forgives you. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, what you say or what you believe, that he's saying, I love you, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. They're washed away. I'm patient, I'm kind. My love never ends. My love's not keeping track of wrongs. Just accept it. Or maybe you just need to say thank you to God you to do that.
saw Rick and Sarah a year and a half ago. And they were more in love than they'd ever been. Now, it was a mature love, a deep love. And when I asked Rick about it, he said, I finally surrendered. I finally realized that the only way this was going to work is if Jesus was going to make it work. If Jesus was going to forgive me for my wrong. Forgiveness isn't free. It's very costly. It cost Jesus his life. But in his death, he paid for it. I don't care how much you feel like you've done or how big you think your debt is. His, his payment, his, his death and resurrection covers it. And his resurrection says that we are freed and that I can conquer any poison that you have placed in your relationships. Your sin's forgiven. Your faith saves you. Live in the peace. Now Rick and, and Sarah may have gotten there sooner if they took the marriage course, so I offer you to consider that. Uh, and we'll have many more stories in the next series that we're starting next week on how God personally encounters each one of us. So we invite you back for our Storyteller series where we learn more about each other and ultimately more about who God is. Have a great week. Go in peace.